Thanks. Also, I was going to comment. Thanks to uh, Tiara and Sarah Beth for leading us in the grace of signing and singing of the songs this morning. It's a great thing to get to experience um, that. I love seeing that from where I sit over there. Um, and to make sure you know that if, if you know of anybody who has any kind of hearing impairment who would uh, like to be involved in that part of our ministry um, that has been led with George and Tiara and Sarah Beth and Micah, this is a, a great ministry opportunity. We'd love to make sure people know exists. And so we're grateful to you guys so much and, uh, and for t- taking us um, in new levels with that kind of ministry. Anyway, we, we love that. Um, I also want to comment and just ask, like, I don't know about you, but I've been surprised by the way these first five chapters of Samuel have actually spoken into my life. Um, I don't know if you've experienced that as well. I, I think when we were, when we decided, we really feel like we're being led to, to, to jump into the Samuels then my thought was, well, that'll be fun because, you know, David later, that's when it'll get fun is when we get to David because David's fun and, you know, we're going to get to do all that kind of stuff. And I've been um, a little bit surprised in the way that, that these first chapters of First Samuel have, have really connected um, in my life. And I hope they have for your as, as well, um, more focus on the Lord God of heaven and on some of the traits of his that we sometimes uh, easily dismiss or walk past. More emphasis on prayer to him over trying to trust my own instincts. Um, that's, that's been really valuable. I, it's been rich for me so far, um, and I appreciate that. So God, where we are in the story, God has recently delivered into the hands of their, delivered his people into the hands of their enemies, the Philistines. And the Philistines at least seem to be totally aware of the fact that this is God conquering his people. Um, the Philistines are just there for the show, and they just get, they just get to be there for the experience of it. He even allows the Philistines to take the golden ark that symbolizes his holiness. In their pride, the Philistines, um, and, and like they're excited about this, this taking the power that they have with the manly, their manly skills of war. Are we not men? Um, they, they want to fight with that. They had put God's holiness on display. At some point, they lost sight of the fact that this was God doing this, and they decided it was them doing it. And so they put God on display. Um, they, they, he's there in their uh, temple of Dagon, probably partially meant to mock him. And surely in the midst of this moment, surely um, God would have seen to the Philistines that they had won. They had conquered the God that the Egyptians could not conquer. They had conquered the God that all of Canaan could not stop. They had conquered the God that no one else seemed to be able to go toe-to-toe with. And now they get to have their, this God, Yahweh, the symbol of His holiness, in their temple by their God, Dagon. And surely it would have seen that the darkness had been victorious. Last, um, I don't know, last few weeks, Hall and I have been going back through the chosen um, at night watching a couple of episodes, many evenings. And, uh, and again, I, I, I've told you before, like it took me forever to watch them the first time because I was so sure I was going to hate them. Um, I was so prepared. I typically hate anything, any type of media that Christians put out. It's, they're just horrible typically. And so I'm just expecting to hate these. And then it's the Bible. So I know they're going to mess it up and they're going to Hollywood it up. And there's just no way I'm going to appreciate it. And I know there's been all kinds of odd um, little, uh, as is always the case, odd little, uh, you know, problems that have risen for different people in different ways. That's fine. But in copying and just watching these and, 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 and watching how these things portray scripture, 
One of the things that struck me is this message, these, these, some of these repetitive messages that we need to hear in the truth of who Christ is as we recognize this. And I was so comforted as I'm literally sitting there on our couch um, going through this passage while watching the Apostle John try to decide how to start his, um, his, his gospel. And realizing that in this moment, surely it seemed to everybody involved except, of course, God, that darkness had been victorious. And there I am, I'm writing this down while I'm hearing on the screen from the, the quote from John 1, verses 4 and 5. And him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And man, it's tempting, especially as we're moving into a post-Christian culture that either God will bring us an awakening to get us out of, um, or He won't, and we will slide further into a post-Christian culture. And it's going to seem more and more often like the darkness is being victorious. And let me just tell you, no, it hasn't. Um, it's not going to be victorious. It's not something, the light is not something darkness can overcome. In this passage here in, in 1 Samuel 6, God had begun to set things right in His own people. But right now in these two chapters, he is teaching some things to the Philistines too about themselves and about himself. So we get this amazing couple of chapters here in which we see that play out. He has humbled their God Dagon. He has rendered him powerless over prosperity, in particular the grain harvest and fertility. At the same time, he has utterly embarrassed the pride of their prideful men of war then they have had to play hot potato with the nuclear bomb of the Ark of God's Covenant, and it has not gone well for them. And we pick up there, and I hope you'll meet me, take out your, your copy of God's Word and meet me in 1 Samuel chapter 6. We'll start in verse 1, and we won't get far. Um, at least, I mean, hopefully we'll get through the chapter this morning, but we won't get far before I'm struck by something here, which I was the Ark Verse six, chapter, of, chapter 6, verse 1, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. I don't know about you, but when we looked at the process last week of the absolute destruction of the people of Philistia, I did not see that taking seven months. This process we looked at, it, it's never happened before. The ark's never been captured before. One commentary noted, by the way, that in seven months, apparently the people of Israel did nothing to reclaim the ark of the covenant. Nothing. They just sat there doing their little job while they actually waited. By the way, this is, and this, it's interesting when you play out, we're going to get a calendar, which we don't always get, but we're going to get a calendar here, which is fun. Seven months. And we're going to see that it's during wheat harvest, which means that the ark was stolen essentially immediately after the last annual celebration of the people of Israel, and it's about to return itself home right before Passover. There's a gap there of about seven months where there are no celebrations at this time. Since then, two have been added, but at this time, um, there weren't really any during that time. Fortunately, once again, we see that God didn't need any help. So... No wonder the Philistines, by the way, this is the time of the wheat harvest. No wonder the Philistines are in a hurry to get rid of the ark. Probably their grain stores had been destroyed by this infestationist plague of mice, and they want the mice gone, and they're about to have to harvest wheat. And you don't want to harvest wheat during a, mice, a mouse infestation, and so he, they are desperate now to get rid of the ark. But all of that, this is what strikes me as most significant. Why did it take seven months? Why did it take so long? 
I don't know about you, but I had a, a youth minister who was very inspiring to me years ago. And my youth minister, one of the things he liked to do is he would say things in a way that was very memorable. Like he would say it, and it would stick in your mind, and you would hold on to it. And here's one of them that he said. Sin will keep you longer than you meant to stay. Take you further than you meant to go, and cost you more than you meant to pay. That is a great power of sin. We think we've counted a cost, and the next thing we know, we've paid a lot more than that. It's been amazing to me over the years as a therapist to see people come in and engage in the confusion of their life. Why is my life falling apart? What's wrong with my life? And it turns out there's a root of sin that has been there, and it's anchored, and it's there, and it's there, and it's there. And they're blind to it. They don't see it. That they don't see this sin in their life and they're living with it and living with it and living with it for days and weeks and months and years and they're living in this sin and they're never engaging in it and they're not getting help with it and it's just costing them more and more. It's amazing when we think about the addictive power of sin. Think about what you've risked with the addictive power of sin. Have you risked careers? Have you risked relationships? Have you risked your relationship with your family, with your church, with your community? Have you risked your marriage? What do we risk because of the sin in our life? And there it is, costing us, threatening us, sitting there like the sword hanging by a thread above our heads that if it ever comes out, we're done. And we live with that. It boggles my mind that we do it. We don't, what we need more than anything else in these moments is to confess. See, confession, which is going to be the theme this morning from this passage, confession is about agreement. That's all it is. Really, confession is, we, we try to think of confession as some big activity, but the truth is it's just agreement. I agree with God. That is confession. I confess the truth of something. And what's wild is we're going to be taught that by the most unlikely source. Verse 2. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we will send, and we'll send it to its place. And that they, the diviners, the priests of the Philistines, said, if you will send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty. By all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. There it is, the role of confession. Agreement. Hey God, I don't need you to convince me anymore. I get it. I agree. We're on the same page. The, the priests are like, yeah, absolutely, get rid of that thing. Please get rid of the ark. But by the way, don't just send it away. Don't do it half-heartedly. We'll talk more about this next week during our devoted Sunday um, as we talk about some of the, the principles that we practice in church of God's holiness. But here's the point. We don't make things true. And we don't make things sacred. Only God can do that. We can recognize it. We can agree or we cannot. We can confess or we can deny. But this is the, the truth is the truth, and that's the way it goes, and we can like it or not, or agree with it or not, or believe it or not, but it's not going to change the reality of it. And the Philistines have faced this pressure, and what's amazing is they faced this pressure for seven months. They, this, this increased, remember that was the language of the last chapter, the pressure of God's hand on them. His hand was heavy on them. He was bowing them. How many of us get there? The arrogance that we bring to the table with God and God's pressure is on our head to bow our neck and bend our knee 
Just confess. That's what he's calling us to. And we fight and we fight as he bends. And our prayer is, by the way, if he loves you, he will continue. If he has chosen you and called you, if you are his, he will continue to hold that pressure to you. And one of two things will happen. You will bow or you will break. And that's what we see over and over again. The priests don't know God directly as we're going to see. But man, do they appreciate the power of a God who they cannot duplicate or understand. God says, I want my box back. He wants my box back. I am holy, he says. I am worthy. And even the Philistines go, yeah, we get it. So the next question is, how do we safely get it back in your hands? They've kidnapped something that doesn't belong to them, and now they've got to get it back to a very powerful person who wants it back. How do you safely deliver that back to that person without being destroyed in the moment of deliverance? They're very afraid, and they have every reason to be. So they ask the question, the, the priests of the Philistines, how amazing that they know. Listen, send something with it. Don't, don't send it back empty-handed. So they say, the leaders say, well, what's the guilt offering that we should return? And the diviners and the priests answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and your gods and your land." This is the Philistine version of, and I can't believe I'm going to use this reference, a Hail Mary, right? They have no idea the correct answer to this. Now, you know that already, and you probably spotted immediately, if you said, if the Philistines had come to you and said, hey, we want to send some golden items back to Yahweh so that he will, will lay off this, this pressure, this plague, you would already know, because you're a good Jewish audience, how many items should you send? Seven. Yeah, you know better. Not five. Those, those, those goofballs don't know. You don't send five things to Yahweh. You send seven. Everyone knows this. You send seven things. Maybe twelve or, or, or sets of three. Those would be good guesses. But seven is the opposite. They don't know that. They have no idea what they're doing. And you've got to love that they even say that at the end of this. Perhaps he will lighten his hand. Listen, we don't have any idea how this works. We're just going for something. Try this. Who knows? Perhaps it'll work. What we got to love is this is yet again here. This is a message, a theme woven through all of Scripture is that this is faith. This is faith. Faith is what we're going to see when Jonathan goes up against the Philistines later and he says, Who knows? Maybe God will deliver them into our hands. Or, or when you have the three Hebrew men facing Nebuchadnezzar, listen, our God can save us, but he may not. Regardless, we're not bowing. Maybe the most powerful version we see all anywhere in the Bible, anywhere in all of history, is the man whose, whose son has been possessed by a demon. And he goes before God and goes before Jesus and says, If you will heal my if you want to heal my son, I know you can. And Jesus says, If, well, do you believe? And the Father says, I believe. Forgive my unbelief. Maybe the most accurate prayer of all time modeled for us. I believe. <coughs> Forgive my unbelief. And here the Philistines are modeling, the Philistines are modeling it for us. I don't know. Try this. Perhaps it'll, perhaps it'll work. We're going to unpack this concept of confession more and more as we go through. Now, of course, 
I have to reference the comedy of, quote, making images of golden rats and images of your tumors because I'm not mature enough not to at least reference that, right? <laughs> so, so I'm not going to spend any time here beyond saying, I'm just curious how much the models were paid. That's all I want to know. How were the tumor models paid? And was it enough? This is a, it feels ridiculous for a reason. I think the author of 1 Samuel wants this to feel ridiculous. And it's going to get more silly um, in some sense. There is, a, there is a humbling going on here that is so absurd. It's supposed to make you chuckle a little. The middle school kid in you is supposed to chuckle a little bit at these type of things. This is an amazing picture. Amazing. But why are they doing it? And the key is found back in verse 5. This is what they realize. They need to, quote, give glory to the God of Israel. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to do this. Here's what we know. We must give glory to the God of Israel. And this is so freeing to me. I don't know about you, but it turns out giving glory to God badly is still the right thing to do. Giving glory to God weakly, poorly, ignorantly is still the right thing to do. Now, is it better to know what you're doing and do it right and do it well? Well, of course it is. How hard is that? We know that. Uh, we were raised by, uh, my sister's over here, we were raised by a dad who, who one of his quotes that he would say was, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing right. Right? right? Is it worth doing well? Worth doing right. And, and so I remember every time I heard that quote as a kid, I thought, well, yeah, if I could do it right, of course I should do it. See, I in my brain reverses those type of things. Well, if I could do it right, of course I should do it. My question is, what if I can't do it well? Should I do it then? That's the hard question. If I don't have the option of doing it well, if I don't know what I'm doing, or I, do I still do it? And I think when it comes to confession before God and trying to, seeking to bring Him glory, doing it badly is a great idea. It's better than not doing it. Then the Philistines have no idea what they're doing. They just know they need to bring glory to the God of Israel. And they're going to learn that the performance quality isn't what matters. The willingness to try to... We, we, listen, we are like the three-year-old sent to clean their room. Of course, God is never going to be impressed by our performance. There's never a time when God says, wow, they did that so well. I think He probably never says that. Man, those people, those humans, they just nailed that. Never comes out of his mouth. He thinks, wow, I'm going to need to, going to, need to kind of fill in the gaps there too, aren't I? Every single time. Oh, you, you cleaned your room, did you? Aren't you such a big helper? Tell you, why don't you go watch a show while I clean your room for you, right? <laughs> the things that have to be done right, he has done them himself. Everything else he calls on us, sure, five tumors and five rats, why not? We'll go with that. Think of the woman at the well. How badly her test, how bad her testimony was, how poorly her testimony was delivered. And yet Jesus delivered to her this message. There will come a day when where we worship is not what's going to matter. What will matter is worshiping in spirit and truth. And that's where we are. And we're not good at either one of those. And yet we're called to live those out. Listen to what the, 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 uh, the, the people get. This is what the, the diviners and the priests get in verse six. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? The priests get it. They get God enough to know this. He's going to get his box back. We can do this the easy way or we can do this the Egyptian way. 
you got two choices here. And one of those choices isn't, you don't send the box back. Sorry. This is a God who isn't told no. He doesn't respect our no answers. If he wants his box back, listen, we saw what he did with the Egyptians. God said, hey, set my people free. They said no. So they got to live through several months or however long of the 10 most awful plagues ever. And then they got to set the people free. Here's a crazy idea, the priests say. Why don't we just shortcut that whole process and give him back his box now while it's still already bad. These are a proud people, the Philistines, a proud people. But they warn, they warn the leaders, you harden your heart against God like Pharaoh did, and he's just going to break you. And then you'll give him his box back. I, well, our vote is you send it back now and don't do it in a half-hearted way. Now, here's what's wild. In the midst of this, the priests come back. I don't know why the priests went this path, because they seem to be on a, a getting something here. But then they say, now, there's always the chance this is all just a big misunderstanding. This is all just a coincidence. Ready? Now then, verse 7, they're going to give some instructions, the priests are, of the priests of the Philistines. Take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put the box at its side, the figures of gold, which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on its way on its own land to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it was not his hand that struck us. It all happened by a coincidence. Now, this is a great little scientific experiment the priests decide to run. It's brilliant. It is, it is actually very well constructed as a scientist. It's a, good, it's a great one. Because they have a theory. Their theory is, this is God. This is Almighty Yahweh. Now, He's got a heavy hand on us. And he's crushing us. So let's set up a puzzle. Let's set up a, a, a test here that will guarantee not to work Unless that's the right, unless our hypothesis is right. So here's what they do. Any, anybody work with cattle? You got any cattle people? And I'm surely here we've got a few. Yeah, I thought so. We've got a few cattle people. So you take, I don't know, four milk cows. We don't know how many that have never had a yoke. Okay. Never had a yoke. People have made a lot of connection to this, like Jesus riding a donkey that's never been ridden and stuff like that. Sure. I, I think this is just all about the scientific experiment that the Philistines are running. So they're running this experiment. They put, they put the yoke on, say, four cows that have never held a yoke before. What is going to happen when they put a yoke on these four cows that have never had a yoke before? Yeah, they're just going to freeze, right? They don't know what's going on. They're like, they're going to panic. And when one of them tries to pull and it doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere, they're going to do what cows do, which is they're going to stand still. They're just going to freeze right there. They're not going anywhere. What just happened? It's like when you put a, a, you know, a, a bag on a dog's head. You know, it's like the whole world just ended, apparently. I'm just going to stay right here. I'm not going to move and say, and the cows are just going to freak because cows are dumb like that. They're just like, why would they go anywhere? We're fine here. We're just, yeah, what is this? Okay. They might have been trained to a yoke. They don't know how to do anything with a yoke. They just freeze or, and panic. Now, but more than that, they go, okay, so, so one option is that the, the cows just don't move. The other option is, he goes, however, here's what we're going to do. Here's Bet Shemesh over here, seven miles away. And here's where we've got the ark with these milk cows. So just right over here, we're going to put their babies. We're going to put the calves in this home just right over here. 
And we're going to say, we're going to start them off, we're going, to, we're going to put this yoke on them, and we're going to hook a big old cart behind them, filled with several hundred pounds of gold. And one of two things is certain to happen naturally. One, they freeze. Two, they are immediately drawn to their babies because their udders are full. They're full of milk. So if you've ever worked with cows, or I don't know, with, with a, a dog that had litter of puppies, or if you've ever nursed a baby... You know the biological pressure to nurse that is there, right? It's very powerful. And these cows, they, they're going to hear the babies calling out to them, and they're going to feel the pressure of the milk build up. And of course, one of two things is going to happen. They're going to freeze because they're freaked out by the yoke in the cart, or they're going to figure out a way to get to their babies. It's a great experiment. So if the cows do either of the two things that of course they're going to do, then we'll know it's just a coincidence. There you go. Verse 10, the men did so. And took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And then they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight into the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. The cows didn't, the, car, the, the minute the yoke went on the cows, and the minute that everything was in the cart and they let go of them, the cows beelined for the nearest border of Israel. And by the way, not liking it, they're lowing the whole way. They want to go to their babies, and something is compelling them to go to Israel. Something is driving them or dragging them to Israel. And by the way, it says the, the Philistines, the lords of the Philistines, followed. Remember how I said this was going to get more silly? Now you've got a picture, a bunch of milk cows lowing with a cart behind it with a bunch of gold stuff on it, moving at the pace of four, I don't know, two, four, eight milk cows, slowly walking seven miles to Israel, and all the lords of the Philistines and their entourage is just walking along behind. We have the weirdest parade going on <laughs> from the Philist from Philistia towards Israel, okay? It should be humorous to us that we, we picture this. How humbling for these lords of Philistines to be following a bunch. You got to imagine the whole time they're like, why are we doing this? The priest told us to do this. We're literally walking by. You can imagine the conversations going on as they're doing this. Then probably they're limping, but if their lesions and their tumors had not yet faded, they're limping all the way there as well, right? The milk cows make this beeline. You can imagine the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant guiding these cows back home. Verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and they saw this ridiculous parade coming, they rejoiced to see it. Especially the Ark. That's what it says in verse 13. 14. The cart came into the field of Joshua. Now check this out. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. They split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now here's what's wild. This whole passage is told to a group of people who know who Joshua is and who know where this big stone is. It's clear in the passage. Good old Joshua, you know him. He's the one who's got that big stone. That big flat stone in the middle of his field. Why he's never gotten rid of that stone, we don't know. It's this big, nice, flat stone like it's made to be an altar. It's been there all along. It's always been there. He just learns to live with it in the middle of his field. And so you picture this, everyone working and they all gather because the, the, the Philistine, the kings of Philistia stop at the border of Israel and the, the ark keeps going. The cows walk all the way up to this stone and stop. 
The Levites are called. This is told a little bit out of order, which happens a lot in Samuel. The Levites are called. They remove the ark. They remove the box of golden figures. They break up the cart to build a fire. They sacrifice the milk cows to the Lord alongside the golden items on top of the rock as well. This all seems perfectly done. It's done exactly the way you would think it should. The Levites come. They apparently properly set the ark off of the cart. The cart, God has provided the means for an altar. There's the stone that God put there. Then he provides the wood for the fire from the cart. He provides the animals for the sacrifice. They put the the golden items up on there. What happens to them? Apparently they aren't destroyed. They're referenced a a little bit later. that They're probably put somewhere to be recognized and represented, but they're going to pass through the fire right in just a second. The emphasis is clear, by the way. This This shows us something. Something new is happening. I want to read this next section, and I want you to listen for the emphasis, and it's going to be different than anything we've seen so far in 1 Samuel. Ready? The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, starting verse 14, and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord, and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them on the great stone. And the bin of Bet Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua Abet Shemesh. The Lord is clearly in the center of their minds and actions. He is referenced over and over again in this section. Everyone seems to know who they're dealing with. It's the Lord. Their sacrifices are for Him. The box is for Him. All of this is His and it's for Him. The ark is now back with His people. Isn't it good that God is willing to take our poor and feeble attempts at worshiping Him and in acknowledging Him? How laughable this story seems. Five tumors, five mice, a ridiculous parade, and yet in the end, God says, all right, well done. This is what I was looking for. And their whole sacrifice here is great, but there's still a problem. Here we are, we would celebrate. We picture this as a great time of celebration, which makes sense. Yay, our box is back. But they've made a mistake. Some of them have. They've forgotten that it's not their box. We have to be careful with that, don't we? How often we do that. We have to be careful that when we say, my wife or my children, or my friends, or my church, or my job, or my skills, or my gifts, or my intelligence, or my money, that we always remember that in no actual way is that ours. It is merely ours to steward. It is ours to be responsible for. And as long as we remember that, that every time we say that, what we mean is mine to be responsible for, not mine to possess. I am the shepherd of these things, not their owner. I am the under-shepherd in regards to all of these things. This isn't my church, it's His. Everything in our lives, in the end, are His. In this case, 
I think some of them fall into the trap of thinking, oh good, our box is back. We're stewarded with these things. My identity, it is not my church. It is not my life. It is not my body. It is my, not my identity. All of these are things I am merely stewards of. They are all his. And some of the men of Bet Shemesh learn in a very extreme and abbreviated way that it's not their box. Verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Bet Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with such a great blow. Here at the end of this great day of celebration, the ark is back. Everybody's happy. We're celebrating. It turns out that it looks like, and I know some of your translations will say 50,000 and 70. That's probably a little bit outdated. It's hard to know for sure, but 70 is, it's kind of been accepted now as the correct number here. But that 70, 70, shocking 70 men in the midst of this whole celebration, apparently some of them decide, the, the, and the commentaries all agree, that what they do here is they look in the ark. Is they decide it's their job, it's their right, it's their whatever, it's their responsibility to pry open the lid of the ark and look inside of it. And 70 of them are struck dead. Verse 20, the men of Bet Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up and away from us? They're ready to get rid of the ark already. I'll bet. A 70 of their friends lying dead in the field of Joshua, I'll bet they're ready for the ark to go someplace else. They ask a question, but they don't answer it. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And the answer is only those whose life corresponds to the holiness he calls us to. This is tough for us. We don't like passages like this. We're first century believers. We, we like the traits of God that are most comfortable to us. And the idea of God at a day when the ark has been returned, striking dead 70 of his own people is uncomfortable to us. And it's meant to be. He has gifted us with his presence. He has not made us his peer. They're two very different things. Consider our arrogance, our willingness. When we look at our lives, there's a reason Jesus references the significance of looking in our own eyes before we look in other people's eyes. The arrogance of us calling out people in their sin while our sin is so great. You see, the glory and holiness and judgment of God is represented in this box. The symbols of His law, His power, and His goodness are inside of it. Unfiltered, listen, unfiltered, God's law and God's goodness and God's power are lethal to us. God's righteousness and His holiness unfiltered are lethal to us. He's that holy. So how can we be around the Lord at all? Like how could we be in His presence at all? How can we carry His presence inside of us? When we were talking about it, Ginger noted um, the same thing that, that other, many others in commentaries and stuff did um, as she's looking at the Bible so that she was working on. They experienced, this is the key to this, I believe, they experienced all of these things without the lid of the ark. They pried open the lid and they experienced these things without the lid of the ark. Do you remember? What is the lid of the ark? It is the mercy seat. These men decided to expose themselves to the glory and power and holiness of God, unfiltered by the mercy of God, and it killed them. That's exactly the symbol I think that we're supposed to take from this. 
And we looked at in the last couple of weeks how the, the tomb itself is a representation of the mercy seat for us. Christ's death and burial and resurrection is a new mercy seat for us that we find in him. He is the mercy seat. Um, during the Christmas season, during Advent, we're going to talk about Jesus in each of the four main implements of the tabernacle. And we get to the ark. This is an obvious one. This is the symbol of his holiness of a God without the symbol of his mercy is death. Verse 21, so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Please come and get it. We don't want it here anymore. They're afraid of his power and holiness. They're asking others to come take it. But I got to tell you, I don't know about you, but I need a God who is holy and who is just, even when that's scary. How can I trust that he will actually judge me and those I love rightly if he isn't? How can I have confidence in his ability to cover my sins if he isn't righteous? This would be the type of God that many of us want to create is like asking our 10-year-old to pay off our mortgage. I mean, they may be happy to do it, but they don't have any money. I don't just need somebody who's willing to take care of these things for me. I need someone who is also able to take care of these things for me. And this is the God who has been revealed now over and over in 1 Samuel, just in the first sixth chapter, a God who is able and a God who is willing. I must confess that he is Lord and that I am not. If you will stand with me, I'm going to read from a passage and then make a couple of references. And then we're going to sing a song of confession. In this passage in Revelation, we're going to run into the fact that no one is able to open the scroll of God's judgment. There is no one holy enough. There is no one worthy enough to open the scroll of God's judgment. And we're going to sing a song that confesses the truth of this. I want you to hear from Revelation 4, 8 through 11. And then I'll wrap up with a couple of thoughts. And then we will hopefully respond. You will respond at this time of invitation, however you see fit in a moment. If, if you are, know you're ready to join this dysfunctional family and you've talked to the right people, you can do that in a moment. But the main thing I would call upon all of us to do is confess what is in our lives that we need to agree with God about. That it needs to be gone or it needs to be put in. That you would, maybe some of you, what you need to do during this time is pull out your phone and delete phone numbers. Or you need to delete an app off your phone. Or you need to put a restriction on how much time you're spending on it. I don't know. Maybe there's very specific things that you know you need to agree with God on and then make a change because of that agreement. I hope you'll listen to him in regards to this. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever... The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and they were created. This is not just a proclamation by these creatures. It is a confession. If we confess our sin, we are agreeing with him that it is sin. If I confess that I am treasure to him, I am agreeing with him whether I feel like I am treasure or not. If I confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, I am declaring my agreement with the truth that he is Lord. I'm not making him Lord. I'm just agreeing with the truth. So what needs to be confessed today? What do you and I need to agree with him about today? If you don't have specific things in mind, we'll be singing together a song of confession. Please respond as the Spirit leads.